0: take your Bibles and turn uh, to the book of, and I'll tell you in a minute, yes, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And then keep your finger there and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 13. If you brought your offering today in an envelope, remember you can place it in any of the six uh, boxes mounted on the wall. Many of you give uh, online and we appreciate that and That has increased greatly since the pandemic. We praise the Lord for His faithfulness to supply all of our needs. This is the last Sunday of the current fiscal year. So, this will make a difference with the bottom line for what comes in in a general fund and in faith promise, which is the way we give to missions here at Friendship and have for many, many years. I'm preaching on the subject, a very practical matter. I hope it will be a blessing and a help to you. Ways in which God proves us, ways in which God proves us. We're in between series. I finished up the series on the parables of Jesus. I'm praying about what God would have us to get into, but I think during the summer I'll preach just standalone messages as God leads, and then we'll get into a series as people come back for the, the fall. But this morning, ways in which God proves us, Deuteronomy 8, and then also... A few verses at the beginning of Deuteronomy 13. The Bible says in verse 1, all the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord sware unto your fathers. Moses goes on to say, and thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, notice that word, to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments, or no, or not. And he humbled thee, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not. In fact, the reason they named it manna is, is what is it? What is it? They didn't know what it was. Neither, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, and he that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Now turning over to the 13th chapter, verse 1, If there arise among you a prophet, or a dreamer of dreams, and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass. Notice it comes to pass. He doesn't say it doesn't come to pass. That's handled in chapter 18. But it comes to pass... Whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods, which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. What are we to do about it? Here it is. Verse 3, Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet, or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God proveth you, there it is again, God is proving you through that, to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Yes, There are tests God gives us. We kind of got used to some tests here during the pandemic, didn't we? I'm glad we don't have to take people's temperature anymore as they came in. I never did feel real comfortable with that contactless infrared thermometer, I'll be honest with you, zapping me. I need all the brain power I can possibly keep at my age. And I kept feeling like maybe some cells were getting zapped when I when I got my temperature taken. Now, I'm not saying anything about it. I'm just saying uh, I'm glad we don't have to. Somebody made a lot of money on those things. Uh, Perhaps they were helpful. They were a gauge of one of the symptoms of COVID, fever. Tests are necessary, aren't they? Diagnostic means are necessary. I know you don't like me to talk about tests, kids, the kids that are left in here, and you're on summer vacation, and teachers, you're probably glad you're not grading them either. But wouldn't it be nice if just like we had that contactless infrared thermometer, we could just put something up to your brain and scan it so you didn't have to have any tests, any pop quizzes, any exams, any cramming? Wouldn't that be nice? little do we realize god is testing us in the ordinary things of life did you know that his purpose for doing so is not so that he would learn something about you no he knows everything about you already he knows your down sitting and your uprising we read in psalm 139 we come to the new testament matthew 10 verse 30 our father knows the number of the hairs of our head And for some of you, that's not a real challenge for Him to do. He knows the Word in our tongue before we even speak it. So God is not testing us to find out something He does not otherwise already know. But He tests us to reveal some things to ourselves. And that's very important. We need to know ourselves that we in turn may know our God and then rely upon His resources, His grace, His help. How comforting it is to know that when God tests us, it's always an open book test. Amen? He wants us to search the Scriptures. Man shall not live by bread alone. We just read by, by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Now, Different message from usual today, but I believe this is what God wants us to meditate on. There are at least six different ways that the Bible says God proves us. I hope you'll take these down. You'll have the outline on the screen, but um, that won't stay up there forever, okay? So I hope you'll remember these things. Jot them down. How does God prove us? How is He testing us? And are we going to pass the test? Number one, He... Tests us with hardships and deprivations. He tests us with hardships and deprivations. That's what he did here with uh, Israel, as Moses recounts their earlier testing in the wilderness. This is the second law. That's what Deuteronomy means. He's giving it to the new generation. This has happened 38 years or more earlier. Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 3. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in thine heart whether thou wouldest keep his commandments verse 16b that he may humble thee and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end now get the picture here's the background for 40 years in the wilderness God was giving his people an education he was proving them he was testing them He was humbling them. In fact, I know we can go to seed with biblical numerology, but some numbers really stand out in the Bible. The number 40 definitely stands out as the number of testing, the number of probation. Moses was on Mount Sinai with God, receiving the law for 40 days, while the children of Israel were being tested at the bottom of the mountain. Jonah went to Nineveh, that mighty city, the capital city of Assyria, and his message was, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall shall be destroyed, overthrown. They repented during those 40 days. It was a time of testing. God withheld His judgment for 150 years. We come to the New Testament, and Jesus Himself, the God-man, was tempted of Satan in the wilderness at the end of 40 days of fasting. So 40 is the number of fast, or, uh, t- testing, probation. God was testing Israel after delivering His people from Egypt. Remember what he done for them. He didn't want them to forget. He kept issuing His business card about this. I'm the Lord thy God that brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. But look at the miracles he done, one after another. He killed all the firstborn in Egypt as the angel passed over that fateful night, but he spared all the firstborn in Goshen, where Israel was, if the blood of the Paschal Lamb had been applied, splashed upon the lintel and the doorposts. He led Israel. He led his people by a cloudy pillar. It was a pillar of cloud by day. It was a pillar of fire by night. But wait a minute. Although it led his people, what did it do for their enemies? It was darkness to them. What a miracle. His people crossed the Red Sea, a miraculous event. It was God's signature miracle for many, many years. The waters rolled up on either side like a scroll. And Israel, two and a half million of them probably, passed on dry ground across the Red Sea. What a miracle. And then when their enemies following them tried to capture them, they were drowned by the same waves that stood on end for, their, for God's people. You know, it had have been easy for Israel to get the big head about all these miracles that God had done for them. Look what God's done for us. He hadn't done this for any other nation. So God didn't allow them to get proud. He tested them right away. He humbled them. Very soon after they left Egypt, their provisions are exhausted. Remember, they left Egypt in haste on the night of the Passover. Their kneading troughs are now empty. Their vessels and wineskins are dry. There are no Costco's and supermarkets out in the wilderness for buying food. There's not even enough blades of grass to feed the cattle, feed the flocks. Every door, every avenue is shut except one, and that is the door of heaven. God alone can help them, and He sure does. He opens the windows of heaven, and for the first time, manna, angel food, as you, if you please, comes down, and God showers them with it. He quenches their thirst with water from the rock that followed them in the wilderness. And that rock pictured Christ. It wasn't just the children of Israel that God humbles by privation and provision. It's us. He allowed the Israelites to get real hungry. It's one thing to be hungry. It's another thing to be hungry. You ever been hungry? I mean, that's the only thing you can think of. Food. And God let the children of Israel be hungry. Suddenly freed from slavery. They'd spoiled the Egyptians. They had plenty of jewelry. But you can't eat jewelry. They needed food. So God sent the manna. Never been seen or tasted before. There was absolutely nothing they did to earn that manna. Nothing they did to produce it. They did not need the dough. They didn't grow the wheat and the barley. Now God could have supplied their Hunger in some other way. He could have caused the stones, the dust of the desert. There was plenty of that. Turn that into bread. But he didn't. He was teaching his people to be humbly dependent upon him. Upon his word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I'm just telling you, folks, God knows how to humble us when we get to thinking that we've made our own way in the world. Oftentimes, you let it happen just suddenly. We lose our job. We land flat on our back in the hospital. Our assets are devoured almost overnight. And then He provides for us in some way we could have never imagined. Maybe God is allowing you right now to hunger for human love. Maybe it's because He wants you to know the love of Jesus. Maybe He's allowing you to hunger for recognition, appreciation, affirmation, commendation. Why is He allowing that to happen? He's allowing you to hunger for that so that you may appreciate and value and esteem the way you should, the well done of Jesus someday. Maybe He's allowing you to hunger for money, for easier circumstances, so that you can experience firsthand God's tender provision customized for you. Maybe it's something I haven't mentioned. But God humbles us so that He can reveal Himself to us. He proves us by exposing the perverseness of our hearts. God continued to expose Israel's idolatry, their unbelief, their rebelliousness, their disobedience. Just like the refiner's fire brings the dross and the scum to the top, so it can be skimmed off, and the pure metal remains. So God tried Israel, and He brought their perverseness and hypocrisy and pride out where He could skim it off. I I know this is not popular preaching, but I need to say it anyway. I don't know, we we don't have as many people here today as normally we'd have. I hope some others will hear this and watch it online. We don't realize how depraved we still are. I didn't realize how depraved America was till I saw all the vileness and obscenities over Friday's decision. We don't realize how much depravity is left in us until God tests us and brings it out. Now, He doesn't tempt us with sin. The writer James makes that clear. First chapter, verses 13 through 15. But like a good doctor, the great physician of souls exposes the the virus in our system. He brings it out so that we can deal with it. Aren't you glad God loves us too much to let us peacefully coexist with our own depravity? Aren't you glad He's so concerned for us that though He receives us just as we are, He loves us too much to leave us that way? So we need to submit to the pruning knife, to the winnowing fan, to the refiner's fire. And it may be shocking, it may be embarrassing to us and to others initially, but eventually there will come forth a vessel sanctified and meet for the Master's use. And I hope we can say thank you, Father. Thank you. God proves us with hardships and deprivations. Just like He did Israel. Secondly, He proves us with false teaching. With lying wonders. And that's what we read about in chapter 13. If you'll turn there again. Chapter 13, verse 1, Deuteronomy. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and giveth thee a sign or a wonder... And the sign or the wonder come to pass. Notice he doesn't say it doesn't come to pass. He deals with that, again, as I said earlier in chapter 18. The wonder or sign comes to pass, whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of the prophet, or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God proves you. He's testing you. To know whether you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. You know, people get shaken up when somebody does a sign or a wonder or makes a prophecy and it comes true. I told you about a fellow that I was working with in the Cayman Islands trying to witness to him. He lost his little baby and I performed a little ceremony for it and tried to show him love and sympathy and, but point out his sin. He went to Miami and went to a palm reader. He came back. His name was Daryl. He was all shook up. He said, that palm reader told me several major things that had happened in my life. He said, I, I don't believe in that stuff, but what am I going to do with it? And I said, "Daryl, i tell you why you're all shook up, because you won't obey the truth. So God will let you believe a lie. Let me tell you this morning, even a broken clock is right twice a day. And when you make a whole bunch of predictions, some of them are going to come true. And some of you will get all impressed with a liar. More so than you are shaken up by the Word of God that you read again and again and again. Under the Old Testament law, men who professed to speak for God. But instead they spoke their own opinions. Things they dreamed up. The only... Judgment God gave them, they were to be executed. And in chapter 18, it talks about if a man makes a, a prophet, a guy claims to be a prophet, and he makes even one prediction that doesn't come true, he's to be discredited wholly and he's to be executed. Now, we don't have a theocracy today, and so we don't execute false prophets. But we certainly need to hold a a prophet to the highest standard of accountability and realize God judges him severely, if he's wrong even once. Just one prophecy not coming true. God tells us that end-time deception will be strong. Remember what Jesus said in the uh, Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, he says, uh, "Don't be deceived by these false Christs and false prophets that will arise. They will show great signs and wonders. If it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived." And some Christians, or professing Christians I'll put it that way have been all impressed with the genie Dixons and Nostradamuses and people like that who have made some predictions that come true. Beloved, in case you haven't noticed, those false prophets are with us now. But Jesus' true sheep, though they're being tested by these voices of a stranger, one of the marks of a true sheep is He will not follow a stranger. The voice of a stranger is strange. He may not be able to put his finger on it exactly. It just doesn't ring true. And so they don't follow the flashy charismatic faith healer, the televangelist preaching the gospel of health and wealth. All it takes to deceive some people today is just a slick operator who does a little hocus-pocus, a little sleight of hand, a little mystifying. He claims to heal somebody. He jabbers away in tongues. He knocks people out in the Spirit. They're slain in the Spirit. And people will flock to them like flies to a garbage can on a summer picnic day. Whole countries in Africa, because they're so desperate, for food, and success materially are following these hucksters. But it's not just the prosperity gospel that is deceiving people. Let me get off on something where I probably won't get much of a response. We're afraid to. In just the last few years, a false gospel has emerged, and it is known as the woke gospel. The woke gospel is redefining basic Bible theological terms. Sin has been redefined as something institutional and not personal. Reconciliation has been interpreted as people groups coming together instead of people being reconciled, sinners to a holy God. According to the woke gospel, there's no real forgiveness. The class of people that is being perceived as wrongfully in power, the hegemony, must keep repenting. And you don't know when they've repented enough. And they must keep making amends to the victim class. And beloved, prominent evangelicals are caught up in that. People whose books you've read and thought better of. We need to be alerted. I'm shocked at some of the people on board with this. God is proving us. Are we going to bend over backwards and please the current politically correct mantra? Or will we continue to proclaim and contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, the true gospel? The test, the axe is being laid through the trees right now. Southern Baptist Convention had half as many messengers at their most recent convention as they did the the year before. And they elected a moderate by 21% differential. Conservatives are shocked. We must discern and reject false prophets. 1 John chapter 4 verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try, that is, test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world as I said already, if they make just one false prophecy, if they espouse heresy and doctrine, we are commanded to avoid them. We are being bombarded in our day, in the 21st century, in the year 2022, we're being bombarded with all kinds of false isms: postmodernism, inclusivism, reconstructionism, syncretism, open theism, wokeism, British Israelism, Neo-Pentecostalism, and On and on, the list could go with isms and asms and spasms. There's no doubt about it, the stage has been set for the consummation of end-time deception in the person of Antichrist, who the Bible says, he will come with all power and signs and lying wonders, with deceivableness in them that perish. And don't you know they'll be charismatic and flashy and relational? So what are we going to do about these birds, these false prophets? Well, the Bible says do two things. First of all, don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. Chapter 13, there in Deuteronomy, verse 3 of the first part, Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. The prophet, the, the apostle John would add in his second epistle uh, verse 10, if there, any, if there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, the truth about Jesus Christ. That's the touchstone, by the way. What do they believe about Christ? If they come unto you and they don't even bring the truth about Christ, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. Don't give him the time of day. Proverbs 19, verse 27, Cease, my son, to hear the instruction that causeth to err from the words of knowledge. I mean, when you hear that stuff, plug your ears and run from it. Because if you're curious about it, if you're impressed by their theatrics, if you're overawed by their alleged miracles, you will be deceived and it may just come out that you don't have the Holy Spirit in you. Because if you're one of God's true sheep, you will flee from that stranger. His voice does not have the ring of truth. Don't even listen to them. Second thing you need to do is don't spare them. Verse 5 of Deuteronomy 13 And that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken to turn you away from the Lord your God. I mentioned this already briefly. We don't live in a theocracy like Israel did. And when they were commanded to execute heretics, so we don't send them to the electric chair or hang them on the gallows, but they need to be exposed and put away from us. False prophets need to be shunned and rejected. By the way, that's the purpose for a true church council. When you go back to Acts 15 and you read about a church council, I've heard of All kinds of unscriptural church councils. I know a church in the Cayman Islands that had a church council. That's what ran the church. Had men, women, businessmen, and ordained people on there. And they thought they were doing something scriptural. No, a church council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L, is to try the spirits. So it can excise them like the cancer they are. And God is testing His church right now with false prophets. He did not create them, but He's testing us with them to see if we will cling to Him with all of our heart and soul and reject them. Paul said to the Galatians, Though we, or an angel from heaven, should give any other gospel unto you than that which you have received, let him be anathema, let him be damned. I don't care how flashy somebody is, I don't care how sincere they are, I don't care how relational they are, I don't care how positive they are, and how many people they appeal to, if they don't give the truth of God's word, leave them like the plague. You say, preacher, you're pretty passionate about yeah, I've seen a lot in my sixty six years. I've seen a lot of God's people enamored with these Johnny-come-latelys. Thirdly, we are tested by the withdrawal of God's sensible or visible presence. This is very rare, but it happens. Would you take your Bibles and turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and verse 31? Let me give you the background here for the sake of time. One of the godliest kings of, of Judah, and there were several that were outstanding, though most of them were corrupt, but one of the godliest kings of the northern uh, of the uh, southern kingdom of Judah was King Hezekiah. Hezekiah had proved God, Hezekiah had experienced amazing blessings and success to the point that he had grown very powerful and wealthy. But on this occasion, the background of the story is this, the princes of Babylon, which had become was about to become the world empire, they had come to flatter him. They had heard that he had been very, very sick, and he had been miraculously recovered from his terminal illness. And when these princes of Babylon came to Jerusalem, Hezekiah in pride gave them the grand tour and showed them all of the Treasures of his house and of the the beautiful temple. And we read this in verse 31. Howbeit in the business of the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon. Who sent unto him to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land. Amazing words. The next three words. God left him. Why? To try him. To test him. That he might know all that was in his heart. Now, wait a minute. As New Testament saints, we know from from the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 13, verse 5, that He will never leave us nor forsake us. But yet there is a sense in which God will hide His face for a season. He'll pull the curtain over His face so that we begin to miss Him, and we mourn after Him. Mary and Joseph went a whole day's journey when Jesus, their son, was 12 years of age. They went a whole day's journey and didn't even realize he wasn't in the company. Some Christians can go a whole week or a whole month and not have fellowship with Jesus until a spiritual emergency arises. We do not know what we are capable of, we do not know the corruption of our hearts. Until God leaves us to ourselves for a time. And that's an awful thing. How sad when Hezekiah had himself destroyed other idols very commendably, but then he began to idolize himself. He became intoxicated with his own success. That's why the Apostle Paul warns us in Romans chapter 12 not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Furthermore, Hezekiah became ungrateful. The Bible says in verse 25 of that same chapter, Second Chronicles chapter 32, he rendered not again according to the benefit done unto him. When we get lifted up in pride, we forget and we become ungrateful what we need to do is when we discover that for some reason, whatever, we have not enjoyed the manifest presence of Jesus any longer. Yes, He's always with us. He never forsakes us. But it's one thing to have His presence. It's something else to feel His presence, His manifest presence. And when we discover that we do not, no longer have His manifest presence What do we need to do? We need to do what Mary and Joseph did when Jesus was 12 years of age. And they'd gone a whole day back from the the temple in Jerusalem without Him. When they discovered that He was not in their company, they retraced their footsteps. It took a whole day to get back. And they said, Son, we have sought thee sorrowing. But that was the number one thing on their agenda. There was nothing else on their agenda that day but to get back with Jesus. Let's mourn the absence of his presence. Let's say with Job, as we read at the beginning of the service, "Oh, that I knew where I might find him. Let's be like that spouse in the book of the Song of Solomon. And I hope you agree with me that that's a beautiful picture of the church and the relationship of the church with her Lord, with her bridegroom, Jesus Christ. When we we realize that we've lost His manifest presence, we will not stop until we find Him. And then when that spouse found Him, she held Him and she would not let Him go. God proves us by withdrawing His visible, manifest presence. Number four, God proves us with opportunities of Christian service. We recently studied the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. I won't go back into that. But remember how the landowner, the Lord, who had gone into a far country for a time to receive the kingdom, when He came back... And, And held his servants to account for how they'd invested while he was gone. He said to the good servant, well done thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. You know sometimes we feel that we are fitted for some great sphere. I've known some believers, not many here at Friendship Praise the Lord, who chafe and get hurt. And feel restricted when some great ministry is withheld from them. But maybe the reason is not far, far away. It's near at hand. Maybe they have been tested in some small thing. Handling what might seem to be a, a small service in the church. And I don't want to even name them because they're all important to God maybe you've been tested in some small way and you've been found careless and unfaithful and half-hearted and undependable. Is it likely that you're going to be entrusted with something greater? Remember hearing my father-in-law say this many years ago. He's in heaven now. The missionary father-in-law, he said he heard this advice as a young man, a farmer, thinking maybe God wants me in full-time service. This was the advice he received, and he put it into practice. The advice was, fill the room you're in, and then God will give you a bigger room. Fill the room you're in, and then God will give you a bigger room. And that's exactly what happened. Then when God suddenly gives you that larger room, you will not be daunted because you will be able to say with the apostle, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Beloved, we are stewards of our time and our opportunities as well as of our resources. God proves us with the opportunities He gives us. Fifthly, God proves us by the money with which He entrusts us. Would you turn to Luke chapter 16, verse 10, Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. The Bible says a lot about money, especially if Jesus does in the New Testament and the Gospels. <clears throat> Jesus is given a a parable here about the unjust steward, and then He comments in verse 9, let's begin in verse 9, Luke chapter 16, And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of, it literally means by means of, the mammon of unrighteousness, that's your money, your material possessions, that when ye fail... Most versions say, it fails, the money, that when it fails, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Who are they? They are the people who you have helped through the wise use of your money. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. Verse 11, if therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, your money, your material possessions, who will commit to your trust the true riches? You've heard me say it so many times, I'll say it again. God greatly tests us with money and material possessions. Jesus told us through the Man in the parable, occupy, trade until I come. God proves us with money before he entrusts us with the real treasures of his kingdom. He tests us with the unrighteous mammon so he'll know what to do about the true riches. Let me ask you, what are the true riches? We probably read that verse many, many times. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself, what are the true riches? Are they galaxies and mansions in the heavens? Are they gleaming cities, celestial treasures? Oh no. Don't you think those true riches would be the things that are valuable to God and the things that last forever? You know what that is? Human souls. Eternal souls. That's the true riches. Paul said to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2.19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18, Paul speaks of the riches of God's glory in His inheritance in the saints. Beloved, we are the jewels that make up God's crown. The church is a showcase that God is going to manifest to all the principalities and powers in the heavenly places forever, according to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. It's all about souls. That's the true riches. And so the clear implication of Luke 16, verses 10 and 11 is that down here we are stewards. We hear a lot about that. We, we need to be reminded of that. I try to do that every year. Yes, we are stewards. We're not the owners But in heaven, we will be the owners. God will give us property of our own. So then let's be careful how we use money. God is testing us for eternal responsibilities that we know little or perhaps nothing of. You would test your little boy, your son, with a toy watch or BB gun before you gave him the real thing. I think God does the same thing. Be a good steward. Let's keep up what God gives us. Be a faithful tither. Be a generous benefactor. Pray about major purchases. Avoid indebtedness. Live within your means. Do not be covetous. Why? This is all show prep for heaven. We are getting practiced up for eternity. Makes it unimportant. Though in itself it's the unrighteous mammon. Fifth, or sixthly, and lastly, we are being tested by our actions with regard to doubtful things. And this is where we all need help. I know I do. Not every decision we face is a black and white matter of right and wrong. There are some gray areas. There's no specific verse that says, Thou shalt have Tom over Tim for thy husband. There's no specific scripture that says, I want you to live in Raleigh, North Carolina, and not in Timbuktu. And and so we've got to understand some principles and apply them objectively and dispassionately to our lives. Furthermore, Paul says in Romans chapter 14 that some Christians are going to have scruples about things that others don't. When we went through the book of Romans several years ago, we really talked a lot about that. Some Christians think they, they need to observe certain days. Others don't think they should, and they do it as unto the Lord. Some Christians think they need to eat certain foods and avoid other foods. And they do it as unto the Lord, while others would differ from them, especially for food offered to idols. They wouldn't have scruples about them. So in, in view of these kind of situations and others that, that I didn't name, God's Word gives us tests and guidelines In the absence of clear precepts. So, I want to give you in closing today a scriptural grid, a filter for questions and issues so that you'll have a clear conscience about making the right decisions and actions. When you're contemplating something and you're not sure what the revealed will of God is about that. All right, I hope you'll write these down. I'll tell you what. We will make these available to, and put it, uh, Heather, would you help me? We'll put this on the website, Melanie, uh, because I think this needs to, to live on after the message. Here's some questions to ask very quickly. Number one, will it glorify God? That's the first thing. You need to make sure you can honestly say, I believe it will glorify God. If you went to the wilds this week, you said it every time you ate. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. First Corinthians ten thirty one. Number two, will it edify my brother or tend to cause him or her to stumble? We may have a complete liberty about it in our own mind. We can do it as unto the Lord, but how is it going to affect uh, perhaps a weaker brother who, because of his background, has scruples about things we don't have? Read Romans 14, verses 13 and 21 especially. Will it edify my brother and sister or tend to cause them to stumble? Number three, the thing that I'm looking at, considering the action that I'm proposing to take, does it have the tendency to crucify or exalt self? Does it have a tendency to crucify self or exalt self? Paul's desire as expressed in, in Philippians 3 verse 10, was that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and In the fellowship of his suffering. That's number three. Number four. I hope you've memorized Philippians 4 verse 8. Does it meet all the criteria of Philippians 4 verse 8? Finally brethren. Whatsoever things are true. Whatsoever things are honest, that means honorable. Whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, that means commendable. If there be any virtue, that word virtue means moral excellence. If there be any praise, if it's praiseworthy, think on these things. You know, sometimes we make the mistake of saying, well, it's true, so I'm going to go ahead and say it. No, that's not the only grid. Is it true and Honest and just and pure and lovely and commendable. When we run it through uh, that grid. Uh, some th- words will die in our mouth. I think I skipped one. Let me get back to it. Num- number four. In doing it, am I abstaining from all appearance of evil as well as abstaining from the overt act? First Thessalonians five twenty-two. We talked about this last week. We are to abstain from all appearance of evil. Remember what Adrian Rogers put on his desk, that motto. He that would not fall must not walk in slippery places. Wow, that would be a good motto for every Christian. Avoid the edge. Stay away from it. Don't see how close you can get and still not fall. Number six. Will it cause me to be enslaved to anything other than Christ? Paul was concerned about this. He said to the Corinthians couple of times. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12. He says, all things are lawful unto me. I've got the freedom to do it, but all things are not expedient. All things are not necessary. All things are lawful unto me. And they want to say, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And he told the same Corinthians in chapter 9 verse 27, he said, I want to be the master of my body. I don't want my body to master me. Will it cause me to be enslaved to anything other than Christ? Seventh, last, perhaps most important, except for the first one, can I do it in love? Can I do it in love? First Corinthians 16, verse 14, let all your things be done in charity. Yes, sometimes love has to be tough love. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do is to, is to tell somebody you're about to hurt yourself, and they won't like it, they won't want to receive it. But let's make sure our motive is love. Because when God chastens us, it's because He loves us. He scourges every son whom He receives. Yes, every day God is testing us in the ordinary things of life. And He's not trying to trap us. He's not asking us gotcha questions. He loves us. He's invested in our success. And that's one reason He's given us His Word. He's given us His Spirit. By Him we've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. And we need to be like David, the stripling of a youth that he was, when he tried to put on the armor of King Saul to go out against Goliath. He was honest about it. It didn't fit him. He said, I've not proven this. He said, it's not natural. It doesn't fit. And he rejected it. We don't really know our own hearts. We don't know what manner of spirit we are of, as Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 55. We are helplessly and constantly dependent upon the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes God has to pass over some of his children when he needs something done. And finally, settle on one that he can trust, because he's been proven. He's proven himself. I love what God said about Abraham when he was considering who he was going to tell, what he was going to do about destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. God said, for I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him to do the ways of the Lord. I know him. He's proven himself. He's put me first. Abraham was battle-tested. How is God proving you right now? Will you submit to the yoke? Or will you chafe against it? That's the question. Let's apply it. Shall we pray? Father, when you allow needs and trials to come into our lives... Help us not to chafe, help us not to wallow in self-pity, help us not to assume an entitlement complex or or accuse you of folly or unfairness or cruelty. so easy to do that, and so many do. Oh, God, help us to bite our lip. And whatever it takes, Father, would you perfect our faith, wean us from sin, make us more truly sympathetic with others of your tried children, and make us more useful to you, I pray.